guys, happy Easter. Woo! If you don't know, we're a multi-site church and we've got like a whole bunch of sites across the city and the shire and there are occasionally moments uh, uh, where we video link and all the rest of it. But downstairs right now, there's a cafe church meeting and we love those guys. You know, it's designed for people who may feel a little bit uncomfortable in big crowds and also just want maybe a supersonically extra strong caffeine coffee, you know, and a, and a nice cake. I think they get cake and stuff. I mean, next week might have nobody here and they're all packed in downstairs. So, hey. So, uh, I don't know what Easter morning looks, looked like for you guys. I mean, as, a, as kids, I mean, for me, um, we'd all run downstairs, go looking for eggs and all the rest of it. And some of you know my background. I lived in India for many years and I grew up in the Himalayas. And so that was lovely. But um, my, my, we'd, be in the, we'd, we'd be in India and uh, Easter would come round and my gran, so you, we're going back a bit, all right? So stay with me, millennials. But um, 1980-odd, she would wrap up Easter eggs and, in particular, um, cream eggs and put them in a, I don't know, a shoebox or whatever and tape it. It was like getting into Fort Knox and send it to India and we would get the Easter eggs, you know, and we'd like tear them open and there they would, we'd have the cream eggs, you know, and we would have a competition, Myself and my two sisters, I've got a younger sister, Rachel. If you think I have slight ADHD, you wait till you meet her. And then my older sister, Lizzie, she's the calm, collected one. Anyway, we would have a competition, and I'm sure that none of you ever do this, you know, sort of sibling rivalry. Who can last the longest? Now, you have to understand, Cadbury's cream eggs, they were like, I mean, this is common now. We would have them, we'd put them on the mantelpiece, and we'd be like, who can restrain themselves the longest? So anyway, I think it, was, it must have been late in the afternoon, uh, my little sister comes to me and she says, so have you eaten yours? I says, yeah, I just I came, couldn't help it, I ate it, and now Lizzie, my older sister, she's like, I know, me too, I totally stuffed it in, how good was it? And my little sister, Rachie, pulls out her egg and went, yeah, I've won, like this. And then slowly unwrapped it in front of us and just kind of, you know, not that any other younger sisters or younger brothers would do this kind of thing. But they're like, she's like, yes, I've won, champion. So she shoves it in, eats it, delighted. And then I pull out my Easter egg. <laughs> Um, I was on FaceTime with my mum and dad just the other week. don't know why I went really Yorkshire there. But we're on FaceTime this week with my mum and dad. And, uh, and, and my mum was telling me the story. And she said, and Jay, did you realize your sister went off, sat in the tennis courts and cried for an hour? So I'm going to FaceTime later with her egg and go, ha, 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 have you eaten yours yet? Anyway, sorry, just by and by. I'm, <laughs> just thought I'd tell you that story. I have no real reason you know, other than it's Easter. Easter. We love it. So, um, we all like a good cliffhanger, don't we? Do we not? We like a good cliffhanger, whether it's in a book or box sets and series. I mean, come on. How, I mean, let's be honest. Watching a box set and it gets to that moment where something happens and then, the, you know, and then it stops and you've got to wait for the next, the next episode. It's a bit of a killer, isn't it? Now, let's just think back. So, for some of us, I can't believe I'm going here. But for some of us, back in the 80s, are you ready? 
Some of you are looking at me like, what the heck is he on about? All I'm saying is this, who shot JR? Yeah? Some of you are like, what the heck is Dallas? All I'm saying, so there's this moment, a guy gets shot, and it's like, oh, listen, Dallas was huge TV in the 80s. I mean, everybody, I reckon Jim Purdy even watched it. I reckon he did. You know, this is a safe place, Jim. You can confess that. No, no. So it was a big deal, wasn't it? So in the 80s, we had Dallas. You know, was it Sue Ellen? Was it Bobby? Who did it? Boom. Everybody was desperate for the next episode, weren't they? And then, let's be honest, the 90s. Friends. Come on. Who was a Friends fan? You can, it's good. Friends was huge. There was a bunch of cliffhanging moments. Rachel uh, and Ross the wedding moment and all of that where Ross, you know, is about to get married to that other girl. And then as they do the vow thing, he says Rachel's name. And then the whole thing goes, you've got to wait for next week. You're like, no, what's going to happen? So we had friends in the 90s. And then the 2000s arrived with this. <laughs> Come on. I mean, Jack Bauer became everybody's hero, did he not? And, and okay, and let's have a wee confession moment for those of us that watched 24. It's, it's midnight. You've sat in bed with the iPad or the laptop or whatever else. Come on, people. And it's like, do we do another one? Do we do another one? And you're looking at this is me and Victoria. We would be doing that. We'd be like, Let's go for it. Let's do another one. We can't. Cliffhanger. And so we'd watch another one. It'd be like two in the morning and you're like, I've got to get up in the morning. We love a cliffhanger. We love a cliffhanger. And then there was like Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. You know, another cliffhanger. Plane crash. <gasps> you know, some of you are like, ooh, I haven't a clue what you're on about. And now, and now all I'm saying is, Jon Snow, you know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. Winter's coming. Some of you are like, what are you on about? I'm so holy. I have no idea what that is. And some of you right now are going, how did he know? I feel, I feel like I've just, I've just confessed something that I shouldn't have been watching. What's going to happen? What is going to happen? We love a cliffhanger. Hey, listen, I, th I came across this picture the other day. I don't know about living on, in this house, but uh, I mean, that is architecture. Risky. Imagine living there. Whew, great view. Bit nervy. Waking up in the morning. I think I'd be like that. Going to the loo now. <laughs> I would be nervous about living there, you know, definitely. And so, guys, we are coming into land. We've been, if you've been with us and journeying with us through uh, the last couple of months, we've been in Mark's gospel and uh, we've been telling the Jesus story. It's been quite a, an up and down roller coaster journey and today it's Easter Sunday. We're in the very last chapter of Mark's gospel. We're coming into land and it is, um, it's really we're going to be looking at uh, John Mark, Mark's last few words on who Jesus is and what happened. And so this, uh, as we come to this scripture, we'll realize he leaves us 
in a bit of a cliffhanger. Because you kind of hope, don't you, as you finish the episodes and the chapters, that actually you get things sewn up and, 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 and you get some kind of conclusion to the story. But actually in Mark's gospel, it isn't quite like that. And actually it's very deliberate. And so we're going to open up the Bible just for a few minutes. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible you want to open up, if you've got your uh, mobile device, that's cool. Let's not do Angry Birds or whatever, or catch up on Jon Snow or anyone else. But, um, and also, we've got a few Bibles down here if you, if you need one, you haven't got one. Um, Johnny, I'm sure will, Johnny with the amazing mullet haircut, will give you a Bible if you want a Bible. Put your hand in the air, going, going once, going twice, three, okay, fine. Right, so we're going to read from chapter 16, and it's going to come up. On the screen. All right. Are we good? You having fun? You think that church can be fun? That's good. Right. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These are the last words of Mark on the Jesus story. Pretty interesting, isn't it? These last words. And Mark's last words are an invitation to follow in the footsteps of these faithful women, these faithful and brave ladies, these women actually that we don't know a whole lot about, but they just want to come and do the right thing with, the, with their Jesus and give Jesus a proper send-off. They want to do the traditional, maybe even the religious thing. And we get that, don't we? When, when a life is ripped from us, when someone who we love and care about is taken from us, we want to give them a good send-off. We want to say our goodbyes well. That's what these ladies were wanting to do early on that morning. They've come to wash and tenderly wrap Jesus' bruised and battered body. They just want to say goodbye. These women who loved him and took care of him in life, they want to do that now. In death. These women, if you know the story, they stayed when others ran. They stayed close. They watched the horror and the brutality of the crucifixion. They saw their Jesus being nailed there. They saw and they heard 
Jesus' last words. They witnessed his last breath. They heard the thunder. They saw the darkness come over the land. They saw that this something absolutely insignificant was happening. And then later they saw Joseph of Arimathea come and take his body down and they followed him. They stuck by him. They watched as Joseph and probably some others took him to Joseph's tomb. They saw where the body was laid. And then they probably saw that huge rock being rolled into place and probably heard the thud and the shudder of the finality that this is over. Their Jesus, their friend, their, their Savior, the one that's promised so much, gone? Over. Must have been unbelievably crushing. I don't know how you read the Bible. I mean, I love stories. So whenever I open up the Bible, I, it's like I step into character. I'm with the women. I'm feeling what they're feeling. We've been on a journey with Jesus, and now suddenly he's dead? Must have been, I mean, I've only ever really experienced a little bit of loss and grief in my life. But I know people who have experienced enormous grief in their life. They must have been absolutely crushed by this moment. And so you can totally understand when they're coming towards the tomb, the questions in their hearts is, you know, we want to just do the right thing, but, but, but here's the deal. Who's going to move the stone away? That was the last thing they saw. It's a, it's a good question. Who's going to do it? We're not going to be able to do it. And then as they look up, they realize the stone is missing. The stone's shifted. Who's done that? Who's already gone ahead of us? Can you imagine them? Going into this cave, this tomb, and then finding not a body, but a, a young man dressed in white. By the way, that's code. An angel. Where it was, it was supposed to be a dead body, there's a live young man sitting there. Can you, I don't know about you, but I know what I'd be thinking. Who moved the stone? And as they got closer, what the, who the, mm, the protective instincts of a mum and a sister would be kicking in. Who's moved the body? What they've done with him? All of that emotion would be flying in them. And then they encounter a young guy who's been sat there, probably a bit like Johnny, you know. Hey, I've just been waiting for you. You're looking for him. You're looking for the Jesus, the Nazarene. He's not here. Look at the last words that Mark uses from the angel to describe this moment. He's saying to everybody listening and reading this moment, he's not here. You've come looking for him, he's not here. He's risen. He's risen. He's not here. He's gone on ahead of you. And if you go, you too can meet him. Oh, what a way to land a story. The cliffhanger in this moment is the crescendo question. The empty tomb is a humongous question to everybody listening and reading this story. If it's empty, what are the implications of Easter Sunday? They're massive. They are absolutely 
massive. He has risen. He isn't here. See for yourself. Go and meet him. What a great invitation. And so then we see this image Mark is painting and kind of wants to tell us the story. It's raw and it is real. Because you think, don't you, the moment the the women hear that he's risen, they're going to be all happy clappy. Yay, high-fiving each other out the tomb. No, 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 no. It's the absolute opposite. They're like, what? And the description there is in fear and trembling, they flee, not telling anybody. It feels like the absolute opposite of what you would want the story to end with. Because Mark is leaving a question. He's leaving a question for you and for me and for everybody hearing it and listening to this story is this. What has just happened? And who is Jesus? Who is he? You see, if you've been journeying with us over the last few months, and we back, so let's, let's backtrack a little bit, all the way back to the beginning of when we first started Mark's gospel. We said we're going to go on a journey with Jesus. Mark introduces the Jesus story as this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is great news. That's how he introduces him. And then we begin this journey. And the question of who is Jesus crops up all the way through Mark's gospel. It crops up in the questions of the crowd as they are even introduced to Jesus. If you go all the way back, we find out, we can hear this question in the crowd and the response to when Jesus is stood teaching them, the crowd are going, who is this guy? Who is he? I have never heard teaching like this. This is unbelievable truth. This guy is speaking with unbelievable authority. Who is he? He's asking the question. Mark starts his gospel by asking the question, who is he? And so we see that in in the crowd listening to his teaching. We hear the crowd again when they gather in this house. It's so packed in. And these four friends bring their lame friend. And I mean lame like he couldn't walk. Not, hey, he's a lame guy. You know, lame friend. No, no, no. That was a rubbish joke, wasn't it? I just like literally saw tumbleweed just doing that. (laughs) But they brought their friend, didn't they? You know, some of you know that story. It's a brilliant story. Pulling him along on a stretcher. And, and then they rip open the roof and they lower him down. This man who could not walk. Jesus says to the guy in front of the crowd, your sins are forgiven. And there's like this deep intake. They're like, you can't say that. That's God's job. And then he says, just so you know, I have authority on earth. Right, mate. It's time to walk out of here. And poof, the guy jumps up and legs it. Leaping and dancing. I mean, if you've never walked and suddenly you're restored, that is a proper moment, isn't it? The crowd are going, we have never seen anything like this before. Who is he? When this guy who's demon-possessed and messed up comes into the fray and one word from Jesus and the evil and the darkness in this man is set and he is set free, they're like, Who is he? Who is he that these things, this darkness obeys him and disappears? When they're, I love that moment when Jesus gets into a boat and he gets his mates in the same boat and they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee and a storm breaks out and Jesus is having a kip. He's, He's chilled out. He's got a pillow and he's having a sleep. 
And the lads are like, whoa, this is a proper squall. We're going to all die. So they wake Jesus up. And they're like, don't you care? And Jesus says, come on, guys. I'm in the boat. Who do you, who do you think I am? And he stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and the sea. And he just says, oi, pack it in. That's in the Greek, by the way. And, the, and, and immediately it says the wind and the waves calm. And the response of the guys sitting in the boat, I don't know what your response would be, but it's like the women in this cave moment. They're like, they are terrified. They're like, <gasps> the waves have just obeyed. They are terrified. And the question they ask each other is like, hey, who is this? Who really is this? Halfway through the Jesus story hit chapter 8 and Jesus has walked up a mountainside. It's like they're going to have some R&R time. And the whole load of stuff has been happening. And the guys have been like, wow, wasn't it amazing? And this has been going on. And then Jesus, it's like they're having a little picnic moment and a little breather. And he just looks them in the eye and says, hey, who do people think I am? And they're looking at each other. And they're like, but Jesus, some people think you're an amazing teacher. Some people think you're a brilliant teacher. Isn't that a safe answer? Isn't that like the, we like to put Jesus in that, in that box. He's a great, he's one of the great teachers. He's a great ethical teacher. He's a great moral teacher. He's like a spiritual guru. Whoa, we recognize that. And Peter and the boys are like, some people think you're that. And then others are going, no, 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 no. Lots of people think you're way more than that. You're some kind of prophet. You're like, you've got foresight. You're seeing into people's lives. It's like you've got a connection to God that lots of us don't have. You, they think you're way more than that. You see, Jesus is asking the question on the mountainside to the guys because he, he wants them to be thinking, hey, hold on a minute. We've seen a whole lot of stuff. We've heard a whole lot of stuff. And Mark is asking the question through Jesus to you and me, you know, 2,000 years later, who do you think he is? Is he just a nice guy? Is he just an amazing teacher? Was he just a prophet from a religious sect? Or is he something more? That's what Mark's getting at you. Can you see that? The question is throughout the story, through the crowds, through the questions of the disciples. And he's aiming. It's like, hey guys, you're listening to this. You're reading this. Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And then you, you nip on a couple of chapters. Some of you are looking at me like, hey, this is brilliant. I don't have to read Mark ever again. We're getting a quick synopsis. You know, but a couple of chapters on, the crowd think they know. The crowd think, hey, we know who he is. He's the king. And so we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey like the kings of old. And they are like crowning him. And they're throwing their jackets on the ground. And they've got palm branches. And they're doing their funky chicken. And, and they're laying things down. And they're like, hey, you're the new king. You're the king that we recognize. You're the king. You're the son of David. That's what they start shouting. That means you're the new king. And you're going to deal with Rome and oppression and all of that stuff. They think they know who he is. And in some ways, that is absolutely true. He is the king, but not that kind of king. But they don't know that yet, do they? And neither do, you know, if we were reading this stuff first time, first script, in in the moment, we'd be like, he's the king and he's going to deal with it all. I know I would. And so we have a Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the king who's going to deal with a whole lot of stuff. And they're like, come on. 
three, four days later, that same king has been beaten, stripped, and now he's walking back up the same hill he came down. And he's walked back up it, carrying a cross with thorns in his head, bleeding, and they're like, we thought we knew. He's the king. And Mark's asking, who is he? He's asking the question, who is he? And then they nail him to a tree. And above his head is the king of the Jews. And then we come all the way down to this moment, the last chapter and the last few words as these women come. They come to an empty tomb three days later after his body, they saw him die. They walk in, they don't find a body, but they find a question. And the question is, who do you think he is? Because if he has risen and if what the angel said is true, then each and every one of us cannot leave the empty tomb unaddressed. Because it's either true or it is an absolute lie. There is no in-between. The Bible doesn't let us do that. Church history really doesn't let us do that. Millions of Christians all over the world don't really let us do that. Because the testimony of the church throughout history is the guy that was in the tomb is no longer there and we've encountered him in life. I mean, the tomb is a a moment with a question coming out of it. Who is this Jesus? Has he risen? Have we asked the question? I appreciate some of us come to church on a regular basis. Some of us in this room are visiting today and you suddenly feel like you've probably just been ambushed. You have. But in a, hopefully in a nice way. Here's the deal. When the, these are Mark's last words, or pretty much. He has risen. I think a good question to ask ourselves is, did he? Did he? He isn't here, then where is he? He's gone on ahead? What was he meaning by that? Just to Galilee? Or has he gone on ahead Beyond death to make a place for us. And then I love the promise. And you will meet him there. Wow. That is an amazing, amazing promise. Because if the tomb is empty and Jesus has risen, then it means that people can actually encounter him. That makes Christianity not a religion. It's a relationship. And that's a totally different gig. The empty tomb is designed to bug us and to get under our skin and actually to really force us to ask a bunch of questions. I read, I thought it was maybe a year or two ago, the life story of a guy called Lee Strobel. He was the, um, one of the uh, editors of the Chicago Tribune in the 80s. 
you know, a bit of a lawyer background and an investigative journalist. His um, wife, well, he, he, he was an absolute atheist and a cynic. His wife was pretty much sort of like, um, well, you know, spirituality, you know, comes and goes, whatever. Uh, and their marriage was on the rocks and it was in a mess. And uh, they had moved to a new apartment, and downstairs was a lovely lady who went to church. And his wife and this woman got to know one another. And the long and the short story is, this, his wife went to church, and uh, something happened. And it set him off on a two-year investigation. And uh, I don't want to say too much, but I think we have a clip of Lee Strobel now. It's been made into a film, his story, but this is Lee Strobel giving something of his story around the empty tomb. My wife was kind of in spiritual neutral, agnostic. I don't know where she was really. She didn't, couldn't put the spiritual stuff quite together. And, and so one day we moved into a condo outside Chicago and the woman downstairs, Linda, was a Christian. And she became best friends with my wife, Leslie. And it was very natural for Linda to talk to Leslie about Jesus, because Jesus is such a part of Linda's life. And Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff. Nobody had ever told her this stuff before. So she asked questions. She went to church with her. After many months, she came up to me and said, Leah, I made a big decision. I said, what? She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. I mean, for an atheist, this is like the worst possible news <laughs> you can get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude or something, you know. Spend all the time on skid row serving the poor or something. I didn't sign up for this. This was not part of the original deal. Honestly, first word that went through my mind, divorce. I, I was just going to leave. But I stuck around. And what, what, what really amazed me was in the following months, I began to see positive changes in her character and in her values and the way she related to me and the children. And it was winsome and it was attractive. And so finally one Sunday morning, I'm sleeping off a hangover and she's getting ready to go to church. And, and she looks at me. She says, Lee, why don't you come to church with me today? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. Get her out of this cult, you know, that she's involved in. So, so, so I go with her to this church meeting in a movie theater about a mile from my house. And the pastor gets up to preach. And he's a young guy. I don't even think he was shaven yet. Um, <laughs> his name was Bill Hybels. And he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. And I remember sitting there as a skeptic. And it was like one after the other. He was just knocking down my, my misconceptions about the Christian life. And so I remember walking out that day saying two things. Number one, I was still an atheist. He did not convince me that day that God exists. But number two, I realized if this stuff is true... This has huge implications for my life, you know, duh. So, so I decided that day I'm going to take my legal training, take my journalism training, and investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? And I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, as I began that investigation, one thing became very clear to me very quickly. And that is this, if, if you want to determine, is Christianity true, and therefore every other contrary faith system in the world false, if you want to get to that issue, all you have to really do is answer one question. You know what it is? Did Jesus, or did he not, return from the dead? That's the ballgame. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly... Did he rise from the dead? And that's where Mark literally pulls the plug 
on his story, and he leaves his readers and us, uh, you know, or, or, or the community in Rome that this thing was written to, it leaves them with this massive question. What are you going to do about it? And are you going to be like the women in the story that then go and actually find and do what he says and investigate for themselves and they encounter a risen Jesus? Listen, hundreds of thousands and millions of people across history and across the world today celebrate Easter not as just some religious moment or religious festival. They're celebrating because they have had a personal encounter with a risen Christ. And their lives have been transformed and are being transformed. I wonder for us today, that question is, I actually have never met the risen Jesus. And is that even possible? Or actually, everything that James has said, is it a lie or is it actually true? And what on earth am I going to do with it? I want to invite you implore you, compel you this morning. I think that the empty tomb shouts out from history across time and space to you and me that we have to somehow answer that question. If the tomb is empty, then who is Jesus? I'd really encourage you to go onto YouTube and bring up Lee Strobel's, um, it's about a 40-minute talk, and he goes through the evidence of the resurrection. It is unbelievably compelling. Compelling and exciting because then this is not just about having a cathartic emotional experience and coming to faith. We're actually saying there is a fact here that this man, God, called Jesus rose from the dead and therefore eternity is secure. Our lives in him mean something. So we're not basing what we believe then just on some kind of nice emotional cathartic experience. We're saying there is something evidential here. And I'd love you to go and have a dig around on that. And as a community, for the last 10 or 12 weeks, we've been running an Alpha course of Alpha courses all over our church. And we've had loads of people go on them. And the Alpha course is designed to help people ask, ask and answer the very question that Mark has been laying out for us this morning. Who do we really think Jesus is and what are the implications of it? And over the next couple of months, we're going to be running more Alpha courses. And we'd love to invite you to come and join us on an Alpha course. Get to know a, a whole bunch of people. But more importantly, maybe discover the truth of the empty tomb. Folks, can I encourage us to stand as we wrap up this morning? Um, we're going to pray. Um, if I could get somebody maybe just to nip downstairs and let the guys downstairs know that we're wrapping up up here that would be amazing and so the kids can come back up hey let me pray for us